You're listening to The Leader's Table, a podcast by Leadership for Educational Equity. Hi, Cindy. Hey, Taylor. And to everyone else out there listening, hello to you as well. Hi, everyone. Well, Cindy, in our recent episode of The Leader's Table with Yolanda Carraway, I remember you mentioning that Jason had some more conversations with some of the other authors of For Colored Girls Who Have Considered Politics. Is that who we'll be hearing from today? That's right. This week, Jason sits down with Reverend Leah Daughtry, a woman of many hats, who, in addition to being an ordained minister, was the CEO of the 2008 and 2016 Democratic National Conventions and the chief of staff to Howard Dean, the former chairman of the Democratic National Committee. Wow, she doesn't seem like your average reverend. Not a bit. She's extraordinary and full of exciting stories from her time in Bill Clinton's administration and the transition to George W. Bush. And even more stories from the Colored Girls Dinners with Washington Insiders. Oh, good. I'm glad there's more. P.S. If you haven't yet heard our previous conversation with Yolanda Carraway, you might want to take a listen to that episode as well, because it gives some great context for these dinners. Good point. With all that said and done, let's get this started. Pull up a seat, everyone. This is Reverend Leah Daughtry joining Jason Lorenz at the Leaders Table. Reverend Leah Daughtry, thanks for joining the Leaders Table. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So I'm excited to interview you for so many reasons. Um, you are both a fourth generation spiritual healer, a CEO, manager, meaning maker, and a daughter of Brooklyn, um, the place that's so near and dear to my heart. Of those titles that you've held, what is the what is the the role or the or the the job, the title, the thing that you hold most dear to your heart? Uh, I think the one that that um, I feel the most reflects who I am is that of a, a pastor or um, spiritual leader, spiritual guide. Um, pastors are obviously it's a church title and it, and it and it refers to the responsibility to lead and to guide people um, through their journeys in life. So that's the one I think is uh, that that connects with me the most. You 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 preach, you teach, you lead, you guide. You're kind of a a, a seer in some sense of uh, being able to discern talents and gifts and skills, and then help people sort of navigate their own way uh, to their lives. And that's been most relevant for me as a convention CEO as a um, she was staff at the party is being able to, it helps me build teams, teams that work well together. Uh, and it helps me see talent and help people hone their own talents and recognize talent within themselves. Uh, I, th- I think all of those things are pastoral responsibilities. And so that's the, that's probably the title that I like the most. And you've brought, your uh you've brought your your spiritual teacher guide pastoring it deeply into politics over the over the decades how did you how did you first start to bring politics and your spiritual life together where did that start you know i was raised in an activist household and i am a fifth generation pastor 
So uh, I'm from a long line of, of folks who were in the pastoring business or the ministry of pastoring dating back to the days of enslavement. So it's always been part of our life. What was unusual for us was um, the way in which our interpretation of the gospel, our understanding of our roles as uh, Christ followers is that we were called, um, not just called, but mandated to be engaged in the community around us and to help by using whatever means we're at our disposal to bring our communities into the privilege, into the abundant lives that God had promised to them. So for our church, that meant being uh, engaged in social justice activities. It meant being engaged in electoral politics uh, as means toward helping people achieve human fulfillment. Of course, praying, in fact, going to church and all the religious rituals that we do, but really understanding that there was a role, that people live in a society where laws can be unjust, where every important part of your life is shaped by um, a political or justice system from where you're allowed to live, what your tax dollars get spent on, where your children go to school, whether there's a stoplight at the corner, what day your trash gets picked up. All of these things are the result of somebody somewhere making a decision for you without you for the most part. You know, I often say on this podcast, I'm a survivor of New York City's public education system. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> and you know exactly what that means. I'm a son of Red Hook, Brooklyn. Um, you and I know a Brooklyn um, that almost doesn't exist anymore in, in some places or certainly has evolved. What did, what did Brooklyn, New York, what did New York politics teach you um, about national politics that you have, you have held uh, in all the roles that you, that you've, uh, that you've been in? Yeah. You know, I grew up in the Brooklyn of the smoke filled rooms um, of machine politics um, and because of where we stood in our church and our activism, we were not invited or welcomed into those smoke films. Decisions were being made by career politicians. And, you know, we were busy railing, you know, railing against the machine, right? So we were busy on the outside knocking and, and saying, you need to do this. It often put us at odds, mostly put us at odds with um, the power structures of those days, including some that are now venerated, like Shirley Chisholm. Uh, we were always fighting with Shirley Chisholm because we didn't think that she was, we thought her approach was too incremental. Um, so, you know, as I think I learned more from my activism in Brooklyn and as we were building a movement, uh, our church was the central place of, uh, of gathering. And all of the people of goodwill who wanted to see changes in the community would often find themselves at, a, at our church. And most of them were not Christian. Most of them were not believers. Uh, but we were a collection of people who just wanted everyone to have their rights. And so whether you were nationalist, pan-Africanist, separatist, communist, socialist, capitalist, uh, you know, Hebrew, Israelite, Muslim, Christian, Jewish, no matter what your stripe was, you were there at the church in our fellowship hall as we struggled and, 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 and determined what forward direction would look like. So what I learned from that, uh, and 
we had friends on the inside. We had friends in the mayor's office. We had friends in an in, in elected official's office. And I learned a couple of things. One, you don't have to be just like me to be just like me. We all have the same concerns. We all want to be safe. We all want to be respected. We all want to be heard. And whether that's me or whether it's the separatists who thinks the United States ought to give us five states and let's just move all the black people to five states, which I think is crazy, but that's what they thought. We could agree to come together on a couple of big issues around police brutality, around economic justice. Their, Their issues were different, but they weren't different. You don't have to be just like me to be just like me. And two, uh, the second lesson I learned was that if you talk long enough with people, you can find something in common. And a lot of the the finger pointing and the boogeyman stuff that happens with politics is is with people you've never had a conversation with. You don't know anything about them. And so it's easy to demonize what you don't know. And if you can just talk with people, not always. But a lot of the times if you can just have a conversation. So at least when you're fighting with me, you understand who I am and it doesn't become personal. It's about the issues. And the third thing I learned from that is you have to have an inside and an outside strategy. It's okay to, you know, be inside and and lobbying for laws, but you better be connected to the community who's not in the room. Uh, And if you're outside rallying and protesting and uprising, you better be connected to the people who are in the room because it's only working together that you're going to achieve any kind of progress. So those lessons have served me well in the in the uh, in the thing called the Democratic Party. Those lessons just take me to a chapter in 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 your book um, for colored girls who have considered politics. In page 187 in the chapter called The Room Where It Happened, um, you you describe the end of the Clinton administration when, during which you served. So the year was 1999 and you were working at the U.S. Department of Labor. The book talks about your work with both the Bush and the Gore at transition teams before we knew which way that would have gone. Um, and I want to read from page 187 of the book because I think it so perfectly connects um, connects what you were just describing. You write, as the transition official, Leah met with both the Gore and Bush teams, separately, of course, answering their questions, gathering documents, etc., as they prepared to take over the government. As the Florida recount and the Supreme Court case moved along, the transition plan planning continued. Leah shuttled between their separate offices as a department, addressing various issues and setting up briefings. Leah. The difference between their approaches was, as my mother would say, like chalk and cheese. The Gore team was loosely organized and far more casual, including in their dress. They worked from yellow legal pads that would give me handwritten lists of documents they wanted. Their requests were varied, and I couldn't discern a clear focus. The Bush folks, on the other hand, came to work every day in suits. I was always dressed as Miss Daughtry, never by my first name. Each team member had a Bush transition notebook containing documents, flowcharts, etc. They asked pointed questions about expiry dates, personnel, budgets. I knew from their questions that they had done their homework and there were specific things they would focus on in their first 100 days. Regulations to be rolled back, personnel actions to be reversed, programs to be cut. I rationalized that the Gore team didn't have to be as specific because Gore had been part of the last eight years of government, so there was little or nothing to roll back or undo. Still, the difference was striking. 
Now, we all know how that went. Supreme Court ultimately decided and the Bush, um, the Bush presidency would begin. What are the lessons that you take from those experiences and the things that you hope that, that the, the appointees, the politicos, the folks working at change who have to be on the both sides of elections will understand when they face similar transitions in the future? That's a really good question. Um, so a couple of things. Um, I did stay and I worked for Elaine Chow for about two or three months. Um, and then it was, it was different enough for me that I chose to leave. A um, couple of things that I think I would encourage people to keep in mind. And one is that um, we, by and large, had our government works talking about the bureau. Everybody likes to talk about the bureaucracy of the government and everybody hates government, right? Except that it really does for the most part work. <laughs> right. And, and if I could wave a magic wand, I would, I would um, have every single person, every young person when they're getting out of college, spend one year working for the government. Because I think it really gives you a good insight into what really happens on the inside. Um, and, and, in the from the difference from Clinton to to Bush, or Gore, you know, Gore to Clinton to Bush. In the Clinton administration, there was a real respect and an honoring of the career government officials who had been there, you know, five, ten, twenty, thirty, who made their careers and invested their time in the government. They were included in meetings because, you know. We knew we were temporary, right? At most, we'd be there eight years. These people had been there 30 years, 20 years. They knew where everything was. And so, you know, if you include them, then they're a wealth of information. When the Bush people came in, it was completely different. All doors were closed, literally. Everyone sat behind a closed door. And the career officials were not invited to or welcome at meetings. So they spent a lot of time uh, discussing things that a career person could have told them, you know, in five minutes, we did that. And this was happening, or this is why you can't do it because that's illegal right? <laughs> or, or things like that. And so, but, it, but it, I think the difference was in how you came to the table, viewing the people that were there. Um, and I think that's, a, that's a really big lesson for us, all of us as leaders, when we come into organizations to really understand who is there already, what might you learn from them? And they have issues and concerns just like you do. So what is the, what, how do you, um, honor that and respect the people with whom you're going to work, whether or not you have differing opinions, because for the most part, you don't know what their opinions are when you're first getting there. So, <laughs> so you need to find all of that out. And so the assumptions that the Bush team made about the people they were coming in to work with uh, really deprived them of uh, the expertise, the experience of those who had been that path before. And I think that's a key lesson for us as leaders when we're coming into organizations or building organizations to really be cognizant of who's there. Uh, and just because you're the boss doesn't mean you know more than anybody else. There's probably some lady, uh, be nice to the receptionists and the administrative assistants because they know everything <laughs> and can make your life easy or can make your life hard. 
Um, but it, it, again, it goes back to recognizing the humanity that exists in each one of us and that we are whole beings. How, how hard is it, though, to see policy positions that you're a part of a team that builds over four or eight years then be subject to the desires of another team that has a very different uh, approach and a very different set of policy priorities? How, how, does, how do you work through that and how do you help the team at any agency that you are in charge of, mm-hmm. um, weather that that change. It is extraordinarily difficult, and and ultimately that's why I left. Um, to see policies that you've worked on being rolled back, and 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 I don't necessarily have a problem with policy differences. We're not going to all agree about everything, every time. Um, but ultimately, for me, it was about the values that they were placing on people's lives um, that I, could, I couldn't agree with, their basis, with the basis of their policy. And so it made me very uncomfortable. And we'll encounter that as leaders. We're going to encounter that in our workplaces in, uh, with, with policies that come down the pike that you don't agree with or policies you're going to issue that people are not going to agree with it. The question for me always is what's the basis of this? What are you trying to get to? What's the, what's the real issue you're trying to address? Cause it's not really about the I's and the T's and the regulations. You're trying to address a specific thing. What is that? And can I understand and agree with your motivation? Uh, if I agree with your motivation, then we can massage the words and we can massage the strategy and the tactic. But if I don't agree with your motivation, then that is a fundamental um, disagreement of, of that gets to the core of your values. And then you got to make a decision because it's difficult to change people's values uh, in a short period of time, barring, you know, some uh, out of body experience that people have by the time they reach the level of, of policymaker, they're pretty set <laughs> in their values. And so you, and once you determine what those are, then you have to determine if that's something that you can work with. I want to turn back to your book. Sometimes I'm going to quote from page 194. It says sometimes something magical happens over meals that can't happen in a formal boardroom. The dinners we held, and we're talking about dinners that you, Yolanda Caraway, Donna Brazil, and Mignon Moore uh, hosted with every Democratic presidential contender of the last almost two decades now. Said something happens over meals that can't happen in a formal boardroom. The dinners we held were relaxed and we created an environment, an environment where, where candidates could be thoughtful and engaging rather than trying to talk and make sound bites or make an impression. We never tried to trick or trap anyone. We were just trying to get to know them. And whatever bit of knowledge we had, we tried to pass on. By 2004, the informal Friday night dinners that you and, and the ladies were hosting for yourselves, which had begun as meals of friendship and support, had grown to include off-the-record strategy with top members of Congress and presidential hopefuls. Everyone was trying to get invited to one of the Color Girls dinners. The list was growing by the day. We were in demand. Howard Dean says of these dinners, if you're smart and you want to get ahead in politics, and then if they ask you to dinner, you better go. They're very rare Washington insiders who understand the rest of the country. That's part of what makes them so valuable. These women have not lost their connections and where they come from. 
walk talk, talk us through a color girl's dinner <laughs> at that <laughs> and and pick any any one guest that might be your favorite um Okay, so let's talk about the dinners we have with other people because those are far more organized than when we try to have dinner with ourselves, which is like, <laughs> you know, we can barely get the dinner reservation straight and we get all mixed up about who's making the reservation. It's just, it's just it's a comedy show. But if we're having guests, then we try to behave and <laughs> actually be somewhat organized about where we're going um, and generally try to pick a restaurant that has a private room uh, so there aren't any gawkers and we can talk freely. Uh, once we know who the guest is, then, you know, it, 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 it sometimes at these dinners, depending, we may bring other people. We each can bring someone, another uh, uh, woman. Uh, and really, uh, generally, one of us, either, uh, it's usually Mignon, uh, opens the dinner with just sort of tone setting. Uh, and then we just have some informal conversation and it morphs into questions. Uh, so let's take, um, I think one of our favorite dinners was Chris Dodd. Senator Chris Dodd of Connecticut when he was running for president because he's just smart and funny, very funny and extremely engaging. I think we closed the restaurant when he was, um, uh, you know, we just noticed all of the wait staff standing around. And I said, I think we're the last ones here and they all want to go home. So we should shut the hell up and let's go. <laughs> let these people go. Um, you know, and it's just a really free flowing kind of conversation about his life, his policies, you know, what he's hoping, how he's getting to the magic number of delegates that he uh, needed or, you know, how he's thinking about the, the, the map, the country, particular policies that he's interested in. Uh, and so you know, it, it's, it's a great time. We learn a lot as much of what the, as much as from what they say. So I'm somebody who wants to see how they're treating the staff in the restaurant how they're talking to the wait staff and the bartenders, uh, you know, just what that, what that tone and tenor is like, because I learn a lot from how people treat um, the quote unquote invisible people, the people who serve us. And, you know, I'm not folks who are rude and dismissive and presumptuous, you know, I just crossed them off my list, <laughs> but he was not one of those. Um, but he, he was a great time, but, you know, each one of them, you know, Hillary, Barack, um, Tom Vilsack, all of them, uh, uh, Evan By, we learned a lot. We le I, you know, I came away with great respect for all of the people that we've had dinner with, uh, even when some things I was like, huh, what's he talking about? Or that's wrong, or you know, but you got to see their the way that they think. And one of the rules is you bring no staff, so there's no they they cannot have any staff at the table. So there's no coaching, there's no hints. It's just us and this and whoever the guest is, and so their guard comes down a little bit. Um, and you know, we have a great time, and we learn a lot, and they learn a lot about us. But it's also you know, as we as we say to all of them when they come, particularly during presidential. Uh, candidate years, what we want to try to do is be a connector to other people. So, you know, for a long time, people of color 
uh, particularly black women, we've been shut out of the formal processes around this. And so we see our role as helping to connect people and get people involved. We're not making an endorsement about who people ought to support. But if you're going through South Carolina, let us know. We'll give you a list of some people you ought to call that you ought to reach out to. If you're going through Detroit, here are some people you should call. They can make their own decisions about whether they're going to support you. But these are key people in these communities who are not elected officials, who may fall off your normal radar screen, but they have influence in the communities and you ought to reach out to them. And so in that way, we help to broaden the tent and broaden uh, uh, the influence of those sisters in, in those various cities and connect the candidates to people who they might not ordinarily uh, connect with. Okay, it's time for a super quick break. In just a minute, we'll be back with more stories about the presidential nominee dinners that we know you won't want to miss. Stick around. Hey everyone, I'm David Whitehead and I'm Lee's Director of Programs and Organizing in the DC region. One of the things that I love most about being on staff at Lee is our ability to get to know awesome members like you and support them in their leadership journeys. One of the ways we do this is by having one-on-one virtual meetings to help you understand the landscape of your region, explore your leadership goals, and develop a plan to achieve those goals. These one-on-ones are a free service to all Lee members who are interested in getting more involved with their community. You'll meet with a Lee staff member like myself, who is from your home region. In the past, Lee members have joined or led massive organizing efforts to move millions in education dollars. Others have analyzed the political landscape and run for office, while others have navigated and advanced their career in countless other ways. These one-on-one conversations are tailored to your interests and opportunities in your specific region. Sessions start out at 30 minutes, and you can sign up for free by logging into your member homepage at educationalequity.org, and near the top right-hand corner, you'll find a link to connect to your designated regional Lee contact. Please head over to educationalequity.org and reach out to us soon. We can't wait to get to know you one-on-one. Okay, equity leaders, we are back and we're picking up right where Jason left off on his interview with Reverend Leah Daughtry, one of the co-authors of For Colored Girls Who Have Considered Politics. Enjoy. Now in the book, um, you write, our dinners looked much different from those normally given by Washington insiders. With the exception of Hillary Clinton, the candidates were all men. With the exception of, of Barack Obama, they were all white, which meant that nine times out of 10, it was one white male candidate and as many as 10 powerful professional black women at the table. Why is that special? Beyond what is obvious, that, that most of these candidates had not been sitting at a table that looked like that table. What, what else made that those moments special? It was a moment, I think, of exposure for them to, um, in a way that, that they may not have been accustomed to. So they all do donor dinners and donor events where, you know, you got the, the one lone mega big black donor that's giving, but to have a collection of high powered black women in the room, some corporate CEOs, media personalities, political operatives, but, you know, from various walks of life, it was a collection of a network that they probably were not aware of. Um, and it brought, it, it, I think for many of them, they, they came away saying, 
huh, all these black women in all these uh, positions didn't know they knew each other. <laughs> uh, this is an important network that I may have been neglecting uh, for all of these years. Um, but also, it gave them a level, gave them exposure to a set of experiences that they may not have uh, had before. There aren't that many black women who rise to be corporate CEOs. There aren't that many who rise to be the top of their game in journalism. So to have them all around the table um, gave them some exposure to to a set of women that they may not have been aware of, whose experiences they may not have heard, and who had who come from around the country, and so could give them some some significant insight into what was happening and for all of these high power women to still be people who maintain their connections to their communities, to the community that raised them, that nurtured them, that pushed them on a path to become a CEO or a commentator or whatever they are um, for them to be and say, Oh, well, if you go into Brooklyn, then you need to call this, that one, and the other one. I'm not disconnected from my community, and neither are any of the other women. And I don't know if that's the same uh, in white circles, where the people still maintain their, you know, connection to the hood where they grew up. You know, <laughs> maybe they do, but it, it's a it's an article of survival for us. You have to maintain. That's the reason we're able to rise and we were those who do the best are those who know where they come from and maintain those connections to the people who raised them to the community that nurtured them and made them who they are and that's where your real power comes from from that community and so i think for those candidates who were who were able to be in the room and to take advantage of it they just got a a whole different slice of america that they were probably not aware of before then hmm what was dinner? What was what was the two thousand eight dinner like with with Hillary Clinton and then Barack Obama? It was a pretty contentious year, I, I think we would it say. It was. It was contentious year, and I think we had dinner with them very, very early. Uh, with with Barack, it was before he had announced, um, and he was thinking about announcing. Um, two, I mean. Very different. Uh, I don't think this is anything that people don't already know. Barack is very, you know, cerebral, uh, brainy, uh, kind of nerdy guy, which you know appeals to me. I'm a nerd too. Um, so the conversation was very high level. Um, a few of us in the room knew him. Everybody wanted to come to that dinner, um, and so it was a. Uh, People were excited to hear him, to see him, to kind of understand what his thought process was. And he was exactly what you saw during the presidency. Very smart, very factual, very sort of, uh, there wasn't a lot of emotionality in his conversation. That's just not who he is. And uh, what we saw during the eight years is what we saw at that dinner. Hillary, on the other hand, many of us knew her. Uh, I had worked for her husband. A few others had worked for her husband. It was another dinner that everyone wanted to be at. <laughs> uh, everybody wanted to hear what she had to say and uh, 
you know, get a sense of what her thoughts and plans were. Uh, and she's far, she was far and she knew most of us. So she was guard down, um, far, it was a very engaging conversation, uh, uh, very energetic, uh, very high energy conversation. And we laughed, laughed a lot. And, uh, um, Everyone had a good time. Everybody had a great time with Barack too. He just—it was just it, personalities are very, very different. Very, very. I mean, it showed in it showed in dinner. So, yeah. Today's world is is our our conversations today are are hallmarked by two facts: uh, a global pandemic that is leaving no part of society unter- un, unaffected, and. A, a renewed focus on a long conversation about the, the, the value of black lives and the place of black people in our politics and our economy and, and in our, our, um, in the halls of justice, right? In the, the way that our, all of our institutions, um, impact black people. What are the questions that all young people should be asking ourselves today in this reality? thinking not just about this moment that we're in, but, but what faces us in the next two, four, five years. What's interesting to me is the intersection of these two things at this particular moment in history, COVID-19 and as I like to call it, COVID-1619, which is the impact of the effects of racism and how that's playing out at this time. And I find it interesting because when uh, Eric Garner was murdered in 2014, same circumstances as George Floyd, killed by police officers, knee to the neck, dying and saying, I can't breathe, and videotaped. It did not catch our imagination in the way that George Floyd's murder did. And I've been asking myself over these last couple of months is why is that? Why exact same thing, but one sparks what we're seeing today and one just gets the head shake. Mm -mm -mm, Isn't that a shame? And I, and I actually think it's because we were in COVID-19 and we were all in some state of quarantine paying far more attention to our phones and our social and our news uh, than we have had the opportunity to do and you know since the internet began. And so millions more people got to see uh, something that wasn't new news. Uh, this killing of, of Mr. Floyd was not new. We've been dealing with these killings all decades. The first rally I ever went to in my life was when I was 10 years old and it was to protest the police killing of uh, Clifford Glover, who was also 10 years old, shot by a um, police officer in the back. So these are not new, you know, go back to Emmett Till and keep going. Um, so I think this pandemic uh, allowed us to focus in a different kind of way. And at the same time, we all wrestled with what's the right thing to do when COVID is passed from person to person so easily. How do I make a statement um, in this moment when I've got elderly parents or, or, or uh, 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 
people with immunocompromised and what's the right thing to do. So, and so, you know, I think uh, we saw episodes of the woke police, the woke police who were demanding that everybody go march. And if you didn't march, then somehow you were unconcerned and uninvolved. Um, And that quickly died down though. So I think what we have to ask ourselves in this moment is what are we individually contributing uh, to these current movements? And the answer is not the same for all of us, but what are you doing? And the answer ought to be, I'm doing whatever I'm doing. I'm doing something. Your answer should not be nothing. What are you doing? Nothing. Because I'm at home because it's COVID. No, read a book, get smarter, uh, do some online voter registration, uh, you know, uh, corral your friends. You can do all kinds of Zooms among your friends to get people smarter, to get people more educated, to keep write letters to the editor or tweet, whatever it is you can do. Each of us can do something. And in this COVID moment, COVID-19 moment, we're being challenged to figure out what it is that we can individually do. So that would be what I would encourage us to ask ourselves, what am I doing? What am I doing to make things better? What am I doing to dismantle racist structures? And that sounds so big, but it's really because each of us individually do something. What can you do? You can vote. You can bring new people into office. That does not require you these days to leave your house. You can make sure your family votes. You can make sure your neighbors vote. You, Everybody can do something. And if you feel you don't know what you're doing, there are resources out there for you. But when 20 years passes and your children and your grandchildren and your nieces and your nephews, for all of us child-free folk, ask you, what were you doing? What do you want to be able to say? Do you want to say, well, it was COVID, so I watched, you know, the Latin, you know, I binge watched Hamilton 49 times. That's what I did because I couldn't do, I couldn't go out. No, the technology has made it possible for each of us to find something that we can do to make ourselves smarter, to build our community and to dismantle systems that don't work for all of us. So that's the question we should ask. What can I do and what will I do? What will I do to make change? Hmm. As a um, CEO of two democratic political conventions, um, that brought thousands of people together to, to get smart and find, find something to do, find some specific things to do and some general things to do in community. What do you think that those spaces will look like over the next years? Um, not just this virtual democratic convention, but, but over the next years, will we evolve toward a more, a more technologically kind of virtually oriented experience, or will politics continue to be uh, as people to people, face to face, hand to hand, once COVID nineteen is behind us? You know, I think it will be some kind of hybrid. Every uh, every four years since I started doing conventions in nineteen ninety two, someone says we need to make it different this time. <laughs> it needs to be different happens every four years and nothing ever is different. What this COVID-19 has forced us to do is disrupted everything and forced us to think about 
how you do things in a different way. And that goes for our lives too, right? It, all of our lives have been disrupted. We had to think of new things. So for conventions, it's now forced us into this virtual environment. Now, I think that's great and the appropriate response for this healthcare moment that we are in right now. I don't know that it stays this way because there is something to be said about the community of delegates who come together, about seeing people energized, the lady with the crazy hats and the one that wears all the buttons. There's something about community and what we have learned in politics. When you think about the Clinton campaign, is that the over-reliance on data and analytics does not often tell the full story of what's going on in communities. There's nothing that replaces the relationship building. I often say the most radical, revolutionary, most woke thing you can do these days is to be in relationship with someone. Because these days you can live your entire life from your couch. You don't have to go out for anything. Everything's delivered. Groceries, you name it. You never have to go out. You never have to see anybody or talk to anybody if you don't want to. So to do the countercultural thing of actually talking to someone on the phone or going to have lunch or dinner or being in community and recognizing our humanity is a revolutionary thing. So I think nothing replaces that. And we're finding that out as we are in month 942 of physical distancing, right? We crave now relationship. We just want to see people. I haven't seen my sisters in five months. My sister came down here. It was like, I hadn't, it's like, oh my God, my sister, I haven't seen you in five months. I've never been that far away from my family and it's made me value it more. So I think as we look at conventions in the future, it will be some sort of hybrid to allow people to who cannot attend to virtually vote and all of that, but nothing replaces the in-person gatherings of delegates. Will it be four days? I don't think we'll ever have another four-day convention. It may be two days. You can get the listen. You can get the business of the convention done in about three hours. <laughs> so all the rest is storytelling, and you know that it doesn't take long to, to have the votes on the platform and the rules and all that. That's three hours worth of stuff, and you're done. Uh, so the rest is storytelling and introducing the candidate to the public. And so I think four day conventions dead. Conventions as a whole not dead. Uh, they'll just be uh, morphed into something that I think will be a hybrid of uh, uh, in-person and virtual uh, convenience. Hmm. Reverend, what's your definition of equity and what is it to be an equity leader today? The definition for me of equity is ensuring that uh, people of diverse backgrounds, particularly those of disadvantaged, uh, distressed backgrounds are allowed to, um, or given the tools to play on a level playing field. So that may mean that they get a 10 yard head start. That may mean that they're, that they, that they stand on a, a, a box that's six feet higher but allows them to see at the same level um, without dismissal of their experience, denigrating their experience, uh, uh, demeaning their experience and the reasons why 
they start at a different place, but to allow as a leader to, to recognize that people's experiences are different, their vocabularies are different, their lived, their lived knowledge is different. And so to kind of course correct um, or for, for those differences that, are, that, are, that recognize that they still bring something to the table, um, that they all, everyone is valuable, but sometimes people need uh, an extra eraser on their pencil or they need an extra tube of ink uh, to make sure that they are able to fully participate um, at the level of their intellect. I thank you for that. I want to move into our two minute answer questions. These are going to be okay. shorter. Okay. If you could snap your fingers to make one change for kids and community today, just one change, what would that be? I would ensure that every child has um, equitable, equitable educational practices. Um, that every child has the same kind of school experience as another, that there are no advantages and disadvantages to their schooling, uh, especially in their early education. What's one tool or skill or resource, maybe a life-changing book or a podcast that you wish every leader would know about and use? I don't know if I have one. I would, I would say read books on leadership written by people who do not have your experience, who are not where you are from, who didn't go to the same kind of schools you went to. If you went to Ivy League, read, read something from an HBCU. Read something on leadership from, from a place that you are not familiar with, from a person whose experience is different from yours. And I think you learn a lot from that. What's a piece of advice you would give your 23-year-old self? Um, what I tell young people now, confidence is a decision. So decide. Decide to be confident. Decide to be all the things. I'm a shy, I was a shy child. I still am to, to some degree. Uh, and I didn't understand that I could decide to be confident and be confident. So I, that's what I tell young people now. Confidence is a decision. So decide. So this is our lightning round. These are three second answers. Oh boy. When you feel over, overwhelmed or lost, what helps you refocus? Prayer. What is one thing about the next generation of leaders that excites you for the future? Their desire to be in community and to reach out for those who have walked the path before them. Who's a hero that inspires your work today? Oh boy. Uh, I guess my heroes are my family. My grandmother, Vermel, who uh, was born in 1912. And especially as we celebrate women's suffrage, she didn't get to vote in 1920. She didn't get to vote until the Voting Rights Act was passed. So I think about her dressing up and going to vote. Um, and that excites me and inspires me. What's changed most about you as a leader across your roles from organizer to church leader, preacher, advisor, convention CEO, government leader? What's, what's changed most about you? I'm much more intentional about who's around me. Uh, I'm clearer about what my own needs are as a leader in order for me to thrive. 
uh, and be the best leader that I can be for the people that I'm called to serve. So, and then I compliment that with people that, that, short, that fill in my shortcomings. Reverend Leah Daughtry, thank you so much for this amazingly wonderful and rich interview. I really appreciate your generosity of time and spirit. Thank you, Jason. I'm so glad to be with you. Once again, that was Jason Lorenz at the Leaders Table with Reverend Leah Daughtry. What did you think of that, Cindy? There was a lot to take in from that interview. I was personally excited to hear her thoughts on activism and religion and how, in her experience, religious places have been a gathering place for communities, even when everyone involved wasn't necessarily practicing the same belief system. Yeah, and I thought her explanation about the importance of just talking with people to get to know them better was simple yet insightful. And she pointed out that you don't necessarily have to agree with them on everything, but that simply understanding one's motivations can make a big difference in finding solutions. And that goes along really well with her advice of reading books on leadership from people who are maybe a bit different than you. We'll throw a few recommended titles from authors with a variety of lived experiences up on the show notes. Hopefully the list will be good for all of you listeners out there. Great idea. We'll also put up a link to Reverend Leah Daudry's book, for colored girls who have considered politics, as well as links to her social media and a full transcript of the episode. You can find it all at educationalequity.org slash leaders table. Now it's time for a quick break. And then we've got an awesome story about a Lee member making a big impact in their community. Hey everyone, my name is Tanya St. Julian and I'm the Chief of Staff here at Leadership for Educational Equity. I spend a lot of time talking with our members, and one of the questions that comes up repeatedly from people who are considering running for office is the question of how to go about raising money. Now, I'm not going to lie. Raising money is key to a successful campaign. And to make things a bit easier, we created a program called Spark Leadership that connects Lee members who are running for office with donors who share their same values. SPARK focuses on ensuring that women, Black, Latinx, Asian, and LGBTQ candidates are able to receive the financial support they need to overcome fundraising barriers and run strong, equity-focused campaigns. If you're interested in learning more about SPARK or how you can leverage your own resources to ensure that more political leaders reflect your experiences and values, check out sparkleaders.org. The website highlights some of the candidates, their successes, and even goes deeper into the care we take matching candidates to donor values. Once again, check out sparkleaders.org to find out how Lee helps fuel change by empowering leaders. Hey, equity leaders. Thanks so much for sticking around. For today's Member in Action report, we chatted with a Lee member who is using the lessons she learned while in the classroom to propel her to take things to the next level in her community. My name is Destiny Chantel Woodbury. I am a former teacher, um, Lee member who live in Houston, Texas, and I am a member of One Houston. One Houston is a Lee member-led organizing alliance that has an ultimate goal of keeping more students in school and on the path to becoming lifelong learners while focusing their efforts on issues like the student-to-prison pipeline. 
One Houston is an anti-racist organization network um, that advocates for community-centered, data-informed, and research-based actions, um, leading to equitable change in our schools and also our community. And our network consists of students, parents, educators, and community members. We do a lot of work around social-emotional learning, restorative practices. Um, and we're, we're doing this work so we can decrease suspensions for our Black and Brown students here in Houston. Destiny's time working to improve students' experience in schools actually inspired her so much that she has started the process of creating her own school called The Anchor School that will be grounded in many of the same principles and core values as with her work with One Houston. I want my students to be conscious justice warriors. And what I mean by that, I want them to be um, agents of change. And so within the Anchor School, there's actually a part of my model where my students will have the opportunity to go to it like an issues assembly. They go like, what are the issues that are happening in their community? And they get to choose like, okay, this is the issue that I want to be a part of this issue action team, right? Like I want them to see like, truly like you are an agent of change and your voice, it means something. As she continues planning for the Anchor School, Destiny is conducting pilot experiences with real students in the Houston area and is already so invigorated by what she sees, knowing that the hard work she is putting in now will have a lifelong impact for many students. Just sitting there and watching them talk and me just listen to them engage in a circle, it just made me see like this is like what I'm doing is it's right and students are saying it's right. Once again, that was Lee member Destiny Chantel Woodbury from Houston, Texas. If you want to find out more about her or other Lee members who are making a big difference in their communities, head on over to our show notes at educationalequity.org slash leaders table. Thanks again for joining us. If you enjoyed the episode, think about sharing it with a friend or colleague or just leaving us a review. You can be alerted of new episodes by subscribing on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts from. And before I forget, we'd love to hear from you. If you've got something to share, please write to us at leaderstable at educationalequity.org. Our show is hosted by Jason Lorenz, Taylor Stewart, and myself, Cindy Centeno. This episode was edited by Nolan Peters and written and produced by Graham Forden. I'm Cindy, and thanks for pulling up a seat at the Leaders Table. Be well, stay safe, and until next time.